0: Hello, and welcome to Ramblings with a Medical Historian. I'm your host, Nicole Curry, and this is a podcast where I ramble on about medical history. I look at strange practices, common misconceptions, and medicine throughout history. I also talk about some interesting Canadian and local history. This is Season 2, Episode 4 so let's continue to talk about residential schools to start with I would like to warn you once again that the topic we're going to be discussing contains things that may be triggering to some individuals we will be discussing the kidnapping and abuse of children and the genocide that was the Canadian residential school system this will be a very heavy topic there is a 24-hour crisis hotline former residential school students can call 1-866-925-4419 for emotional crisis referral service and information on other health supports from the Government of Canada. Indigenous peoples across Canada can also go to the Hope for Wellness helpline 24 hours a day, 7 days a week for counselling and crisis intervention. Call the toll-free helpline at 1-855-242-3310 or connect to the online chat. I have put a link to the helplines in the show notes, as well as a link to more information to begin your learning journey and learn about the Indigenous peoples across Canada. Lastly, I would like to acknowledge that I am a settler. I live between the Batchawana First Nations and the Garden River First Nation Reserves on Robinson-Huron Treaty Territory. The Indigenous peoples of North America have been here for over 30,000 years. It behooves us to acknowledge and study Indigenous history. Today, I will be discussing the Canadian Indian residential school system that has had great intergenerational impacts. We left off talking about the Indian Act that started the Canadian residential school system. So now we move on to the schools themselves and when they started. As Europeans first arrived in North America, Jesuit priests were not far behind. The priests began to move farther into the continent. Their goal was to find Indigenous people across the world and convert them to Christianity. At first, they would travel throughout North America and convert and teach people along the way. Then, they began to set up missions, usually near Indigenous settlements or gathering places like here in Sault Ste. Marie. These missions had the goal of teaching Indigenous children and to show them the European way of life, because they believed everyone had to be converted to Christianity and also that European society knowledge and ways were the best. The missionaries had the idea of the other. In history, you can always see examples of othering. This is when a person or group sees differences as bad, scary, or lesser. So this could be a group seeing another religion that is not theirs as lesser or a different race, culture, language, beliefs, opinions, and so on. Therefore, from the start, they were always looking down on Indigenous peoples, their language, traditions, beliefs, and culture. This would obviously impact their interactions and teachings as well. They believed if they taught people when they were young, they would be more easily converted and able to join European society. They would try to convert the adults as well, since conversion was always their main objective. Historically, religious orders were in charge of education. It was not just the Catholics, but Protestant sects as well, like the Anglican Church. Therefore, when it came to the education of Indigenous peoples, the government left it in the hands of the churches. Another reason for the creation of residential schools, other than the assimilation of Indigenous peoples into European society and to make them become more economically self-efficient and not dependent upon government funding, was in response to the perceived threat and barrier posed by Indigenous peoples to the ongoing construction of the newly forming nation of Canada. They developed a system that mimicked schools in the United States and in British colonies, where governments and colonial powers used large boarding style industrial schools to convert masses of indigenous and poor children into Catholics and Protestants, and turn them into good industrious workers. These schools were used in Ireland, South Africa, Australia and New Zealand, as well in Sweden for indigenous Sami children as a way for new settlers to claim land traditionally occupied by indigenous peoples. Canada adopted this model in order to enforce the adoption of European traditions, language, and lifestyles by the First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children. It is important to note that in the beginning, Indigenous leaders hoped Euro-Canadian schooling would help their young to learn the skills of the newcomer society and help them make a successful transition to a world dominated by the strangers. They had no idea what these schools were like and what their impact would be. Before Confederation, there were already some residential schools operating. The oldest continually operating residential school in Canada was the Mohawk Institute in what is now Brantford Ontario run by the Anglican Church in 1830 this school began as a day school for six nations boys but in 1831 it started to accept boarding students at first it only accepted boys but began to admit girls in 1834 It was to become the first residential school in the Canadian Indian residential school system. These early residential schools were sometimes called industrial schools. They were meant to teach different manual labor skills, such as cooking, sewing and cleaning for girls and farming, woodworking and other trades for boys. In 1842, Governor General Sir Charles Bagot appointed the Commission to report on the affairs of Indians in Canada. The Bagot Commission was a royal commission in the province of Canada, convened by Charles Bagot, the province's Governor General. It proposed reforms to predecessor legislation of the Indian Act and to provincial administration of Indigenous affairs. The commission was active from 1842 to 1844. In 1844, the Bagot Commission report was presented to the Legislative Assembly. It reported that it found reserve communities in a half-civilized state. It proposed that separating Indigenous children from their parents is the best way to assimilate them into Euro-Canadian culture. Also, the establishment of boarding schools distant from the child's community to provide training in manual labor and agriculture. The commission recommended that the Mohawk Institute be considered a model for these other industrial schools. Here is a quote from 1879 that echoed that sentiment. If anything is to be done with the Indian, we must catch him very young. The child must be kept constantly within the circle of civilized conditions." This was said by Nicholas Flood Davin in his report on industrial schools for Indians and half-breeds in 1879. That same year, in 1844, Methodist minister Egerton Ryerson was appointed Chief Superintendent of Education for Upper Canada. He supported the Bagot approach. He was also commissioned by the assistant superintendent general of Indian affairs to study native education. He proposed a model on which the Indian residential school system was to be built. They began to employ his methods in order to integrate the native children into the new world in which they were to live. In 1861, St. Mary's Mission Indian Residential School Mission and Presbyterian Kokwalitsa Indian Residential School opened in Chilliwack. It was the first residential school in B.C. In 1862, Blue Quills Indian Residential School, Hospice of Saint Joseph, Lac La Biche Boarding School was established at Saint Paul, Alberta. It was the first residential school on the prairies. In 1867, we had Confederation and the Indian Act. In 1876, the Act aims to eradicate Indigenous culture in favour of assimilation into Euro Canadian society. The Act also reinforces that status Indians must voluntarily give up status and treaty rights to vote federally. Status Indian women are barred from voting in banned council elections. In 1879, Nicholas Flood Davin, journalist and defeated Tory candidate, was commissioned by Prime Minister MacDonald, also Minister of the Interior, to produce a proposal for Indian education. He visited U.S. industrial schools grounded in the policy of aggressive civilization. He proposed the Report on Industrial Schools for Indians and Half-breeds, Four residential schools already operated in Ontario, and mission schools were planned for the West. The state is generally t- taken to mark the beginning of Indian residential schools, though the system had early predecessors in New France and New Brunswick, and several schools were already operating. On July 1st, 1883, Based on the recommendations of the Daven Report, Sir John A. Macdonald authorized the creation of the residential school system, designed to isolate Indigenous children from their families and cut all ties to their culture. Despite treaty promises, the reserve lacked schools. Therefore, the removal, often forcible, of pupils or, should I say, children, sometimes as young as two or three, from their homes and taken to residential schools is the option most often chosen by the government. Davin's findings were supported by Vital Justin Grenadin, who felt that while the likelihood of civilizing adults was low, there was hope when it came to Indigenous children. He explained in a letter to Public Works Minister Hector Louis Langevin, their best course of action would be to make children quote, lead a life different from their parents and cause them to forget the customs, habits, and language of their ancestors, end quote. In 1883, Parliament approved for three industrial schools and the first Battleford Industrial School opened on December 1st of that year. By 1900, there were 61 schools in operation. On April 19th, 1884, amendments to the Indian Act of 1876 were made to provide for the creation of residential schools, funded and operated by the Government of Canada and Roman Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, Presbyterian, and United Churches. In 1890, over a 100 years before the residential school system was closed, physician Dr. G. Orton reported to Indian Affairs that tuberculosis in the schools could be reduced by half, but the measures were rejected because they were too costly. We will look at health in residential schools in a later episode, but this is the first time concerns were addressed, which was only about 10 years after the Canadian residential school system began, with the Indian Act followed by subsequent reports and then amendments that clearly stated the creation of residential schools. On January 1st, 1896, the number of residential schools across Canada quickly climbed to over 40. Each school was provided with an allowance per student, which led to overcrowding and an increase in illness within these institutions. Regulations were passed in 1892, giving control over daily school administration to churches. These churches were the Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, and Methodist churches. In 1925, the Methodists joined most Presbyterians and others to form the United Church, which continued to run the schools. In 1896, a program of studies was issued. It stressed the importance of replacing the children's native tongue with English. Children were forbidden to speak their native language, even to each other, and were punished for doing so. This continued to be the policy for life of the system. In 1904, Minister Sir Clifford Sifton announced the closure of industrial schools, the large urban institutions, in favour of boarding schools. They are closed over the next two decades. The government and the church found it better to keep the children separated from their families so as not to compromise their education and reintroduce Indigenous teachings, beliefs, languages, or culture. I think we shall leave it off there for today. In the next episode, we can move into the 20th century and see what changes were happening then. I will be breaking up the residential school series with episodes on medical histories so that we have a break from these heavy episodes. I try and do a bunch of research for every episode, but this is a very hard and heavy topic to study. So I apologize that this series is so long and drawn out, but I would like to give you as in-depth of a picture as I can, rather than just doing a general gloss over of the topic. I hope you have learned something today, and if you would like to know more or see the sources that I have used for this episode, you can find them on my website that is linked in the show notes or episode description. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at ramblings with a medical historian on Facebook and Instagram or ramblings.mh at gmail.com. Follow me on my socials to stay up to date with the episodes. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep rambling on.